Good morning, Miss Yo. Uh, the scripture today comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Amen. Well, welcome to church, everybody. You did not know that you were going to start your church day with a pop quiz, but <laughs> thanks for participating. And if you have a paper one and you weren't sure what to do with it, you can place it back in that silver tin, or you can leave it even on the communion table, and we will pick it up at the end of service. Well, welcome. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here with Heather. It's so good to have you if you are new. Today, we are beginning a brand new series or set of conversations exploring human identity. We're calling the series, I Am Not. A human identity, identity in general, as we've been like researching the series and talking about it with our like community groups and house churches and friends, what I have realized is that trying to have a conversation about identity is pretty tricky. Identity is a complicated thing made up of lots of complicated pieces and elements. We were talking about it with my house church, which is like our midweek group, and I asked everybody to define like what was their definition of identity, and what we got was a little bit of a different definition from every single person in the group, and they were all kind of right. Like, that's what makes identity a tricky conversation. Some people were like, identity, who I am, is my history and experiences, and it's my family of origin, and that's the primary thing that shapes my identity. And that's true. That's a huge part of your identity and the story that you tell yourself. Other people were like, it's my values, it's my character, it's the things that I care about, and it's the things that I am pursuing, like, in terms of who I want to be. And you're like, well, yeah, that's totally a part of your identity, your values, your character the things you prioritize. We just kept listing different things that were all a part of our identity, and the truth is, is all those things are a part. Roles that we fill, father, mother, husband, son, student, teacher, those are parts of our identity. And as I was thinking about this, the definition that I think makes the most sense to me, this is not scientific, it's not, uh, don't take this to any bank, I don't know why you would take it to a bank. Don't take it to a bank, though. It's not going to get you anything. <laughs> the definition that I have found most helpful for myself, this is why you understand where this is coming from. This is Johnny, not science, not Jesus, is that identity is the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. 
Identity is the stories that we believe about ourselves. It's the stories that we tell about ourselves. We're like an anthology of different narratives and tales that we hold together, and we hear those stories and process those stories and tell those stories over each other. And the reason I like narrative language for thinking about identity is I think it includes all of the complexities that we've named and that my house church this week named about identity. The story includes the things that you care about, your values, your characteristics. The story includes the experiences that you had. That's what makes a story good or heartbreaking or tragic, is that you've had experiences that are a part of the plot line of your life. And I like story language, too, because it includes development of your identity. I am not the same person who began the story of my life, and I will not be the same person at the end of that story that I am right now. There's room for growth and development and the fluidity of my identity. The other reason I like story language, though, is I think it names one of the tricks or hard parts about having a conversation about identity is that many of the stories we tell ourselves are beautiful. Many of the stories that we've inherited from our families or our histories or our experiences are beautiful and good and enriching, but some of them are not. Some of the stories that we tell ourselves are painful. Some of the stories that our experiences wrote over us are painful and difficult. But the trick about stories is that those stories, those things we believe, those things we tell ourselves, the narratives that we rehearse, they don't actually have to be true for them to be powerful. I can believe stories deep in my bones that my head knows are not factual. That's the trick about a story, is we might rehearse it, we might tell it, we might re-narrate it, we might live in it as a character, even though a big part of our like, rational consciousness is like, that's not true. Like, for example, I know, I know my identity has nothing to do with your success, with Missio's success. I know it doesn't. I know, like, up here. But in here, in my, in my stomach... It does not feel like that often. There's a different story that I feel deep in my body. And I feel much more at ease when the stories that are being reflected back to me from the community are stories of victory and success and how cool you think I am. And then I feel very different when the story that gets reflected back to me is, we didn't really like that very much. I know that's not true. But just because I know that story isn't true doesn't mean that story doesn't have the power to shape me and to influence me and to just rattle around in my skull, not paying rent. And finally, the reason I like identity language or story language for identity the most is that just as we have learned stories, we can unlearn them and we can learn new ones. Just as we have learned stories that make their way into our bodies, make their way into our conscious, make their way into the operating system of our lives, just as we have inherited those or learned those or gained those, we can unlearn stories and learn new ones. We are not trapped in the stories that we've inherited. We are not trapped in the legacy of our families. We are not trapped in the stories people have written over us. We can learn new ones. It's not always easy, but we can. And for the next six 
weeks, that will be our work together as a community, talking through stories that shape our identity, trying to narrate and name and identify and diagnose some of the stories that narrate our identity in ways that can be painful or reductionistic or small, and then to try to counter those stories with the truth of who we are, who God made us to be, and who we are in Jesus. So that's our goal for the next six weeks or so. I hope you will participate with us in some of it, you know. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to begin our conversation about identity. We're going to set some stages talk about some lies that I tend to fall prey to, narratives that I tend to fall prey to. But really what we're trying to do is set the stage about human identity. And Well, there's, I think the best place to begin a story about human identity is the same place that you begin any good story, in the beginning. (laughs) I just to live in that one for a second. The story of our Bible, Genesis 1, begins with that phrase, in the beginning. And oftentimes, when we talk about Genesis 1, I think this is just an important thing to narrate for a moment. Oftentimes, when we talk about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we can get really distracted in these portions of Scripture because we want them to be having modern conversations with modern science. So then when we're reading these moments, we miss what is actually happening in the text. Those are important conversations to have. But Genesis 1, Genesis 2, is not trying to have a conversation about the scientific origins of the universe. Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to have an identity conversation. That's what Genesis 1 is. It's a conversation about who is God, who are you, and is the place that you call home welcoming, safe, loving, and good. That's the story that's beginning to play out in Genesis chapter 1. And it was written to counter other identity stories, which is really interesting. It's a story about our identity, and it was written to counter other stories that would say something about human identity that was less than good. And and here's what I mean. Imagine for a moment, we're going to do a little imaginative exercise. Imagine for a moment with me that you are an ancient Hebrew. Can you get yourself in that state of mind? You're an ancient Hebrew. (laughs) You're having coffee with your ancient Babylonian neighbor. Everything playing out right? All right, so you're at a coffee shop, your ancient Babylonian neighbor, you're, you're drinking a cortado that ancient Grayson has made for you. <laughs> and you're having a conversation, and like any kind of conversation that you have with a friend or a human, it begins to go to the places that all deep human conversations go. Who are we? Why are we? What are we? And you're having this conversation with your Babylonian neighbor, and they sip on their cortado, and they're like, this is pretty good, Grayson. And then they begin to answer what they think the story of human identity is. And they would say, well, I think think the world is pretty scary. Fundamentally, my understanding of the world is that it is pretty scary. It's pretty chaotic, actually, that the creation we Living is the product of violence, that gods fought one another, and out of their remains, they built the universe. And humans, me, well, I was made to be a slave of these warring, fickle, capricious deities. You, the ancient Hebrew, you'd sip your coffee, and you're like, that is dark. 
That's a dark story. That's a story about fear and violence and chaos. And though it looks ancient and has some ancient characters, I think a lot of human stories still kind of look like that. And as an ancient Hebrew, you hear this story and you think back to the stories that you were told about the creation of the universe and about your place within it. And you think, well, hold on. The story that I learned is that God has no rivals. God doesn't have to fight violently to do anything because God is singular. And I learned the world isn't scary or chaotic, but it was actually the product of deep abundance and love that a God so good and wide was able to sing the world into existence, fill it with beauty and life and potential, place each component in its proper place so that I would know I belong. You're like, I'm not made to be a servant or a slave. No, no, no. My story tells me that I am a mago image bearer, that I was made like the creator to partner, participate, and join like a royal steward in this creative God's effort. That's a different story about human identity. Now, that's what Genesis 1 was written to do is you were having conversations with your ancient neighbor that you could be like, ah, that's an interesting story about what it means to be human. Let me tell you what I think. And just as that was true for the ancient Hebrews who found themselves in exile in Babylon, surrounded by other stories of identity, that is also true for us, that the Genesis 1 narrative is where we begin. It's a story that tells us who we are what it means to be human. This is a story that begins in the goodness of our creator, and as it moves towards you and I, Lo read this passage for us to begin with, but this is what the passage says about humanity. God has just created everything, spoken it into existence, filled it with beauty and life and light and potential, and then it moves to humans, and this is what the text says, verse 27 God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. The word used for image in this text is very interesting. Greek uh, Septuagint translations of the Old Testament will use the word icon which maybe brings to mind images of like religious iconography, that's an appropriate thing to picture. You see like a picture of Jesus, that's kind of the image that it's correcting. There's something about being human that's like an icon of the divine, but the Hebrew word for image in this moment is Salem, which we later will translate idol. All throughout the Old Testament, when God describes other idols or false idols or bronze idols, it's that same word, an image of God, and I think that is so fascinating because what's happening in Genesis 1 is that humanity is created to be like a living idol, a living icon of the divine. That when you would look at someone else, what you would see is the beauty and the splendor and the wonder of a creative God who invested each and every single person with that image and representation. And it is also a a work that we are invited into, that as we live and breathe and move, we are a reflection of this God's creative 
reality. This is where Genesis 1 begins the story of human identity. These are the first words about what it means to be human. You reflect the goodness, the wonder, and the abundance of God. Other stories may tell you something else. Other stories may whisper over us that we are broken or worthless or only good to be cast aside, but the truth is you were made in God's image, and every breath you take is a reminder to me and to you and the entire cosmos that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the truth. Who you are and what it means to be human. That is where our story begins. However, as we all know in our bodies and in our minds, that that story does not always remain the story that we tell ourselves or tell over one another. And even though that story may be true at its most deep and fundamental level that you were made in God's image, it doesn't always feel that way. And the next beat in the Genesis story begins to help us understand why. In Genesis 3, we read about a moment that reveals a profound wounding to human identity. It causes a bit of an identity crisis. In Genesis 3, you're probably familiar with this story. The accuser, in the text called Satan or the serpent, but later known as the accuser, comes to our ancestors. And fundamentally, the thing that happens in this moment is a challenge to identity. It's a question about what it means to be human, what it means to be made in God's image, what it means to trust that we are what God says we are. It's a challenge to both our understanding of us and to our understanding of God. And it's a new story. If the story we just began with was that we are image bearers, the story that enters this universe in Genesis chapter 3 is a story of scarcity, a story of lack. The primary question that the accuser presents to our ancient ancestors is, are you really enough? Did God create you in goodness, or do you actually lack something? St. Irenaeus, who is a second-century church father, refers to this moment, I think in a really helpful way to me, he refers to this moment as the old wound. The Genesis 3, what it depicts is the old wound. Because what happens in this moment is a wounding of that identity that we were created within. It's the introduction of a kind of self-doubt, an introduction of a kind of scarcity, an introduction to a kind of not-enoughness. It begins to undermine the narrative that we are image-bearers. And you see it play out in the text in Genesis chapter 3. After buying into the lie, our ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, they feel afraid for the very first time. And they hide themselves from God, which is a thing that has never happened before because they've not told themselves a story of shame or mistakes or lack. And they run, they hide themselves in the garden, they fashion clothes out of fig leaves. And there's something I can't stop thinking when God first shows up to them, God like runs after them. He's like, hey, what's going on? The first question that God asks is, 
who told you you were naked that your bodies were something to be ashamed of? Who told you this story? Like, what happened in this moment that you were living as, like, Imago Dei, worthy, knowing beings, and all of a sudden something is wounding, and you begin to experience that old story of lack of insignificance? And in response to God showing up, Adam and Eve hide, they blame one another. What began as a good story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 has now been met with a counter story. It's a story about lack, a story about not being enough, a story about shame and image, a story about mistakes. It's that old wound. And I, I like that language of old wound not only to describe this moment, but I like that language of old wound because I think it still affects us. It's an old wound that still reveals itself in new and fresh ways all the time. I am not immune to that old wound. I feel it all the time within me. You can hear that whispered accusation that I am not enough. And like Adam and Eve, I often respond by trying to hide that wound behind other stories. For me, those are stories about how hard I work about how smart I am, about how much I achieve. Maybe you're like that. You have similar stories that you tell yourself. Now, I don't have to tell you this. If you're in this room, you already know this. That is a heavy burden to bear, to try to tell yourself a story, to hide a wound. A friend of mine um, I can't remember actually when this happened. A friend of mine asked me once if I had any regrets. And I tend to be a pretty future-oriented person, and so I was like, no, of course not. And then like immediately after that conversation, I was like, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. And it's so stupid. I was having a conversation. Uh, as a pastor, I was having a conversation. It was a, a woman who was like attending our church, and I'm having a conversation with her, but she brings her boyfriend. And her boyfriend is in a cult. And I don't mean that derogatory. I mean that he believed Jesus was alive and, like, lived next door to him. Like, that they were friends. His name was Jeff. Like, that kind of situation, right? We're having a conversation, and we're sort of, like, going back and forth about, like, this Bible verse says Jeff is Jesus. And I'm like, I don't know that it does. And we're just kind of going back and forth, having this conversation. And something in me hyperfixated in this moment on, like, proving this person wrong. Have you ever been in a moment like this where you're like, I wouldn't normally have this conversation. Like, I would, this is not how I would want to talk to somebody. Our frameworks are different. You believe Jesus is Jeff, I don't. Like, I don't know how we're going to get there together by arguing scripture. But I was, like, focused. I think my identity got wrapped up in this moment. That, like, if this person was right, then I was stupid. And, like, I couldn't let that be the story. And so I hyper fixated. And we were there for hours, going back and forth, back and forth. And this dude schooled me. He just knew all of it. She ended up not staying in our church. They hang out with Jeff all the time. And I can't stop thinking about that story. And it's an insane conversation. Like, if I think back on that moment, you're like, this is an insane conversation to be having. 
but it tapped on a wound. And so it lives in my mind, rent-free, just rattling around because I think it came so close to other deeper wounds, those same kinds of wounds that meant I didn't try very hard in school because I was afraid of being perceived as dumb, and the same kind of wound that makes it a little hard to tell you that even now because I would like you to think that I am very smart. It taps on wounds, and we tell ourselves these stories. We try to hide those wounds behind a whole myriad of things. For me, it's work, it's accomplishment, it's achievement, it's all the books that I keep in my office so that when you walk in there, you think I'm really cool. <laughs> and those stories in and of themselves are not wrong. The, the trick is the stories we tell ourselves often conceal the accusation. So the story that if I could be smart enough, then no one would know I'm done, it conceals that I might be dumb. And so even the good version of that story is kind of whispering in the back of my head something painful. And then when I come to a moment, like this argument about Jeff, and I feel like I have lost all that's revealed is what was hidden in the center of that story. And the smart enough part, well, that's, that's gone. Stories in order to hide that old and sometimes new wounds. What do we do with those accusations, those harmful stories? Because I think, I think most of us in this room know at like a theoretical level that those stories aren't true. I think most of us, at like a theoretical level, we know that. But it kind of doesn't matter because it feels so true. And when the difficulty comes, or when life is unfair, or when we fail, when other people fail us, and that lie is revealed to us, it kind of it doesn't matter what our rational brain can do. At least for me, it, what's up here starts to go out the window. All that matters is what I'm feeling in here. And what do you do with these harmful stories that you may know are untrue, but still feel true. We said it at the beginning of this. The good news is that just as we have learned stories, we can unlearn them. We can unlearn stories and we can learn new ones. A very wise friend told me this recently and I've not been able to stop thinking about it. That just as we have learned stories, we can unlearn them. And we can learn new ones. There's this moment from the life of Jesus where he is teaching, and he's having a conversation with religious folks and insiders, and then a group of people who are culturally perceived as outsiders. And it's a conversation fundamentally about identity. You have these religious folks who think that they are worth more than everybody else around them, and then you have a group of people who are there who have been told they are worth less because they are culturally on the outside. And so Jesus is having this conversation. He's like sort of telling them the true story about them and about the religious folks and how you don't get to believe that you're worth more just because you've done the right religious things, that we're actually all image bearers. He's sort of having this conversation and confronting 
and encouraging. But then he moves on to say something that I think is really helpful for us today. Verse 27, he says, this is Matthew 11, verse 27, and I'm going to read this from the message translation. Verse 27, it says, Jesus resumed talking to the people, but now tenderly. I like that addition. It says, the Father has given me all these things to do and to say. This is a unique father-son operation, coming out of the father and son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does, but I'm not keeping it for myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. I love this line because he's just been telling them a story, and he's like, hey, I will walk this story through with you. I will go line by line. You want to carefully talk about who you are and what it means to be perceived by God? Let's go line by line, slowly but surely. But then he says something that I think we really have to pay attention to for how we learn new stories. He goes to say this. This is the next verse. I'm not skipping anything. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out by religion, by work, by stories of identity that are pretty empty and heavy? He says, come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you will learn to live freely and lightly. I think many of us know the truth. But if you were to answer questions about who you are, about how worthy you are, about whether you're loved or not, you would have the right answer. That's not true for everybody, but I think many of us, that is true. But there is a difference between knowing things to be true and believing them to be true. And in Jesus, what we see is a story that gets to both places. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and in him we see the perfect love of God reflected back towards us. He'll go line by line on a story of our worth and our goodness with us. He's like, but if you really want to know it, if you really want to learn it, if you really want to feel it deep inside your bones, come and walk with me. Come and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Let me teach you how to rest. Learning new stories takes a bit of practice. It takes a bit of practice. I don't use the word practice because you have to practice something in order to perfect it or you have to practice something in order to like belong or be good enough. No, no, no. You are loved. Your identity is secure. Who God says you are is, is a fact. That part is true. What takes practice, I think, is our belief of it our sense of it, our intuition of it. And so he's like, come and walk with me, work with me, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Our true image bearer will show us how it's done and do it with us. 
so that in him we can relearn our story. In uh, 2019, I've told this story like a bunch, uh, but in 2019, I tore my ACL, and I just really want you to know how athletic I am. That's why I keep bringing it up, so you know I'm extreme. Uh, <laughs> it's like my first run on the first day of the ski season. Uh, I tore my ACL, I got tobogganed off the mountain, uh, and then I had surgery like a month or two later, and after surgery... I started like a pretty intensive physical therapy process. Many of you in here have probably done more intensive physical therapy process or know how this works. But you go to physical therapy and they like stretch you on this like weird torture stretchy device. And then mostly they just lead you through like the slowest Pilates class. But there's this instruction that my PT gave me a lot. Uh, and he was like, you will, without ever recognizing it, and without ever knowing it, your body will adapt due to your injury. So your other muscles will get strong really fast. And your body will sort of switch how it works and how it functions so that you don't really notice that you are injured. And this crazy thing would happen when we'd, I'd go to physical therapy. He'd be like, do a box jump. And I would be like there and I'd, like, I'd jump. I'd be like, this is great. I feel great. And he'd be like, do it on your injured leg. And I would just fall over immediately. It's like your body just adapts so quickly. I didn't even realize it, how strong my right leg became or how other parts of my body adapted to carry the weight of my injured left leg. And then as soon as I put weight on my one individual injured left leg, you're like, oh, it's, it's very bad. It cannot jump. So you'd be like, you have to learn not just muscle growth. You don't just regrow these things. Like part of the work here is proper form. Like being really deliberate and intentional about how you heal so that your left leg heals well. Because if you don't do that work well, even though your body has adapted, he was like, you're actually now straining other muscles and you can open yourself up to other injuries. Let's do the work of proper formation so that your body moves back to wholeness. And I think Christian identity is really like this. Jesus describes himself as the great physician who is healing our wounds. That is true. That is good. I think Jesus is also a bit like a physical therapist. <laughs> PTs in the crowd. <laughs> Put this here for you, Abby. But Jesus, I think this is true. Jesus is a bit like a physical therapist who is like, I am healing that wound. Those stories are coming undone. That is true, but I'm going to invite you to learn a new way of living a story. To learn a new form. To learn healthy movements. To stop coping so much with this part of your body because that is opening you up to residual injury. Let's Learn how to walk together. Let's learn how to rest together. Let's learn how to work together. Because in me, you see fullness of image-bearing life. Let me show you. Let's do this together. Let's heal those muscles. I think with Jesus, we learn what it means to be healed. With him, we learn what love looks like in its motion. With him, we learn what it means to be an image bearer. That's why Jesus said, I have come that you might have life 
and life to the fullest. So come to me. Let's walk this and heal together. This will be the work that we are up to over the next five weeks, Missio. We'll continue to explore who we are, and we'll dive in even more specifically to certain lies and counter stories that we believe. But it begins here. We are image bearers. We've been healed in Jesus, and he is inviting us every day to move at his speed, which is the speed of love, to learn how to walk with him and to live a different story. As we close, I want to do something a little bit different in response to this. In a moment, we'll come to the table, but instead of asking you some reflection questions or even just praying over you, what I want to do is an activity to maybe help us center ourselves in this and move towards this. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we wrap this sermon up. I'm going to ask you to like kind of get comfortable. Hopefully you are. These are pretty squishy chairs. And then if you're comfortable with this, you don't have to, would you maybe close your eyes? I just want you to get into a bit of an imaginative, prayerful, meditative space with me. I'm just going to ask a couple of questions and provide a little bit of space for us to reflect on them together. Missio, here's the first one. Would you just imagine yourself for a moment? I don't know what comes to mind when you think about yourself, what images come to mind, what pictures come to mind. But do you see the goodness the glory, the wonder, the splendor of God. As you look at yourself, as you feel, you breathe, maybe as you just get a sense of your own body, does it remind you that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? You just take a notice of your breath and let it be a reminder that you are beloved. And maybe as you're in this space and you're kind of imagining yourself, other stories or other images came to mind first. Can you, in your mind, name what those stories are? What other words or images or narratives came to your body or your heart when you pictured yourself? Don't be harsh with those. Those stories are often concealing an old, sometimes a new wound. Maybe you already know what that wound is, or maybe... You just need to take a moment to be attentive. What's your body saying to you? What is your spirit telling you? In Matthew 11, it says that Jesus turned and began to spoke, speak tenderly. So as you think of these counter stories and the wounds that they often hide, can you imagine a tender word? 
How might Jesus speak tenderly? What would a tender invitation to follow Jesus look like? Maybe you are like me and you've put a lot of emphasis on being smart or working hard. And so you need to hear Jesus say, come and rest with me. Come and learn unforced rhythms of grace. What is a tender word to you? As you identify what that tender word is, would you just hold it? Begin to think, how can I respond to this tender invitation? What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us with that tender invitation in mind. Maybe you're still thinking about it, you're still coming to that place, but would you bring that tender word to follow Jesus? You can bring it to this table where we every week remember that Jesus has invited us in kindness and care to follow, to know, and to participate in him. So would you bring that tender invitation? Maybe this is the first risk in living and practicing a new story of our identity rooted in him. Maybe it's your first word to hear a tender word. Maybe that's not how you've pictured God or the people who write your story. So maybe that's the moment for you. It's just to hear something tender. Whatever it is, would you can bring it to this table? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that your story tells us who we are. And there's a lot of other stories, some that are in my own heart, that try to whisper to me or shout to me a different story about who I am, about what it means to be me. But today, God, would we hear your story? That we are your image bearers. That our every breath is a reminder of your creativity and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And Jesus, we hear your tender invitation to re-enter into that story with you. Maybe there's a risk that has been named in us. Maybe there's a step that's been identified that we can take this week. Would you lead us and give us the courage to take that step, knowing that you move at the speed of love right alongside of us? So God, help us to hear it. Help it to get into our bones and help us to live it this week. In your name we pray. Amen.